Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast, formerly the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. Each week, I speak to incredible people who are working on how we can get to next level thinking, sense making, and decision making so we can keep ahead in an accelerating world. My guests share how they amplify their productivity, the success of organizations, and the potential of humanity by using an array of technologies, including AI, innovative processes, and sometimes simple everyday practices. I do this podcast to learn. I learn so much from every guest I speak to, and I'm sure you will too. If you are intent on amplifying your cognition, simply go to amplifyingcognition.com to access a trove of useful resources, including the Humans Plus AI learning community, resources and downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app, which allows you to interface more effectively with AI, transcripts from all of our podcast episodes, and far more. That's amplifyingcognition.com. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to hear more and help others to find the podcast by liking or sharing. It makes a massive difference. So thank you. For something a bit different and very suitably at the beginning of the year, this episode is a compilation of recent guests on the Amplifying Cognition podcast talking about expanding possibilities and opportunities. You will hear powerful excerpts from Nora Bateson, Dave Gray, John Hagel, and April Rinne. A massive part of amplifying ourselves is in seeing opportunity and actively creating and seizing possibilities. Soak in the insights from these fabulous thinkers. They're all both inspiring and deeply practical. To kick off, we have an excerpt from my conversation with Nora Bateson on episode 20. The center of her work is the idea of increasing possibility. And here she discusses the idea of warm data, information that is alive, that helps us to perceive possibilities. One of the beautiful phrases in your book is, I shall always act to increase possibility. And I, and I think that's a little bit... You know, the, the, you're describing some of the ways in which we are constrained in who we are, who we could be, our relationships. And I think a very, you know, very pointed question is, what are the things that we can do to increase our possibilities? I'm so glad you asked, because it's this is, um, you know, when you're trying to approach these processes that are taking place, not necessarily at first order, at the first level where you might point to a symptom and say, okay, there's the issue. We have to solve that issue. But in this way in which we're looking at nth order, so the relationships that make relationships that make relationships that make relationships, the communication that makes communication that makes communication. And as I was just saying, a lot of this stuff is tacit. It's implied. It's metacommunication. It's living in a realm that's very real, but very slippery. It's gaseous. It's like it's hard to grab hold of it. And, you know, you, it's not like changing the distributor cap in your pickup truck. You know, changing the possibility of communication means another thing. So this, for me, is where warm data has been um, really exciting. Um, because after many years of working with various sorts of systems change and various kinds of modelings and thises and thats, and, and also coming from my own history, which I guess we'll get to in a minute, um, 
So, so could you explain warm warm data as a as a concept? I yeah. So warm data as a concept. There's sort of two ways of looking at it. So warm data as a thing is information, um, but it's a way of recognizing information that's taking place between multiple contexts. So it's transcontextual information. All right. So in that example of who is Ross, who is Ross? Um, in relationship to your microbiome, in relationship to the, the tax agency, in relationship to your lover, in relationship to children, if you have any, or your dogs, or your childhood friends, or your professional relationships, or your um, your parents, your ancestors, the grandchildren that are not here yet the great-great-grandchildren to be who are you. And in each one of those contexts, you are not the same. So who are you? And and so there's this way of recognizing that information moves in different contexts. And this is um, a necessary practice of perceiving complex systems. Um, And another way to describe warm data is that it's information that's alive. So I could put you in a box and I could say, oh, Ross, you know, he's got a podcast. But that would be a huge reductionism of who you are. And it's not that it's untrue that you have a podcast and I could study all your podcasts, but I would still know very little about you. I could deduct and I could, you know, sort of make correlations and I could do this and that, but I will not have a sense of your vitality from that. Um, so, so my suspicion is that uh, because there's basically so much information missing, that many of the responses that are attempted are responses to reductionist information, information that's been decontextualized from its living processes and recontextualized into a mechanistic, more industrialized set of understandings. So how do we actually respond to a living world if our information is not itself alive? Question. And that's kind of at the core of what warm data as a, as an idea is about. The Warm Data Lab is a process that I work with with groups of people in practicing this perception. Um, it's a practice, and and a practice in which the the transcontextual perception and cognition you're interested in cognition is able to shift in ways that are not necessarily explicit. So it's recognizing that many of the things that are blocking us epistemologically are things that are habits that we don't even know we're doing. Ghosts of industrial assumptions that are so deeply lodged in our language, in the way we went to school, in our understanding of how you define something or strategize something or solve something or even identify a problem, that that these capacities are infected with ghosts of of industrial eugenics um control mechanistic mm. ideas etc colonial notions of that 
that these notions will justify exploitation, decontextualization, devitalization, and, and take out the possibility. Okay. So where, where I'm saying I want to always act to increase possibility, what I'm really saying is I want to be able to perceive those possibilities that the complexity in the process brings that may not be the ones I think I'm looking for. That's the catch. Dave Gray describes himself as a possibilitarian and is founder of the School of the Possible. So not surprisingly, much of the conversation with uh, Dave in episode 17 was about possibility. This excerpt is about choosing the path of fear, advice that I found personally very useful and have taken with a great effect. I'd like you to offer some distilled wisdom no. on how it is... You know, some advice, some suggestions to people on how it is they can, well, I would say think better, but I mean, whatever whatever positive direction you can do. How do we think of the possible? How do we think better? How do we you know, live yeah. better lives and achieve more? Well, a couple of thoughts I think might be helpful. One um, is the idea of um, not necessarily limiting your thinking to what can be put into words and uh, typed or written on a page to um, to explore the idea of uh, visual thinking. I do have a free online class that I could share a link to you that people can go and watch. Great. You know, maybe be in the show notes. Um, you know, a few five to ten to twenty minute videos and kind of explore that territory so that would be uh i think a good jumping off point um drawing is thinking just like writing is thinking uh if it can't be drawn it can't be done um so it's also a great way to explore and clarify you know possibilities when you're still thinking about them so just like um just like uh leonardo da vinci was able to sketch a lot of ideas that didn't weren't able to be realized even with the technology of his time sketching is a way to start thinking about those things. Um, even if you're not going to be designing a helicopter or an airplane, you know, 500 years before it's a fact, um, you might still find that by sketching and scribbling, you come up with ideas and concepts that you wouldn't ever come up with any other way. So that's one start scribbling. And, um, another one is, uh, this idea of, uh, fear. I mean, we, we're wired to seek reward and avoid threat. Every organism in the, in the universe is wired to seek reward and avoid threat. And, um, for good reasons, our wiring is kind of biased a little bit towards the avoiding threat part. You, you're not going to, you know, a possibilitarian that gets eaten by a dinosaur is not going to pass on their uh, genes to the next generation. <laughs> so um, I think um, that's why we have a lot of, we're, we're emotionally and hormonally wired to to be afraid to, to kind of cling to the status quo, the safe zone, and not to step into those uh, adv- more adventurous or dangerous territories. But um, my uh, one rule that has served me really well over the course of my life is when, when I'm facing a, a a dilemma or a decision or a choice about where to go in the future, and one of and they seem roughly equal, but one feels safer and the other feels scary. Um, 
always go toward the fear uh, because that's where growth is. That's where possibilities are. That's where the opportunities are. I think if you, um, the fact that you're even weighing it as a possibility, um, means that it's a, it's a, it's a realistic and possible scenario. The fact that you're feeling fear is probably relative to, um, your wiring and your, your tendency to want to seek uh, safety and avoid threat. You know, the, 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 it, you know, the, the world is a, is it can be a dangerous and scary place, but for the most part, um, you're, you're not taking your life in your hands when you take a chance in the, in the business or the creative world. So I encourage people to step into that, lean into that fear and, um, and take a, a few steps. You can, you, you live in, in the, near the ocean and you go swimming every day. Oh, well, you know, there's sharks in the ocean. <laughs> yes. There's, there's always some danger, but, you don't have to dive into the deep part of the deepest part of the ocean. You can step in, you can, you can wade in, you can go partway in, you can go halfway in. Um, so there's a lot of ways to uh, kind of trick yourself into stepping into uncomfortable situations that um, can be really rewarding in terms of personal growth. So I encourage people to, to when in doubt, go towards the fear. I think that uh, following that advice will get take people a very, very, very long way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Very quick break to point you to amplifyingcognition.com. You'll find a stack of resources to help you get to next level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making, including the Humans Plus AI learning community with extensive courses and events, free downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app to achieve more with AI, productivity programs for individuals and companies, and far more. Now back to the show. In episode 13, John Hagel talked about the journey beyond fear, the passion of the explorer, and creating unlimited possibilities. So let's let's come back to the you know the the fear and shifting to the shifting to the passion of the explorer so you know i think uh you know, people really have to read your book that you beyond fear to uh to get the full story but in a, in a compact version all right where people are in a place of fear there's the potential uh, which which limits their thinking their ability to think better act better uh and the potential is to get to the passion of the explorer where they uh soaking in anything which is useful to them to be able to you know, guy, you know, shape their, their path. So what's the journey? How, how does one get <laughs> from a place of fear to the passion of the explorer in three words or less? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like to say if I could summarize my book, I wouldn't have to write the book. It would just be yes. my summary. Um, no, I, I think it's, it's complicated. There are many different paths that it, for the journey and it's all based on where you come from as an individual. But a key element, again, this is based on research that I've been doing is focusing initially on what I call your narrative. And again, it's complicated because when I talk about narrative, most people think I'm talking about stories, stories and narratives, same thing. No, I make the distinction that stories are self-contained. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end to them. 
the end, it's over. And the story is about me, the storyteller, or it's about some other people, real or imagined. It's not about you. In contrast, a narrative, the way I define it, is open-ended. It's about the future, and the the issue is there's either a threat, a big threat, or a big opportunity in the future, not clear whether it's going to be achieved or not, and the resolution of the narrative hinges on you. It's a call to action to say your choices, your actions are going to help determine how this narrative plays out. And so, and again, it's complicated. You have to read the book, but... um, I talk about narratives at many different levels. I start with the individual, personal narrative, and urging people to reflect, what's your view of the future? Is it primarily a threat or an opportunity? And do you have a call to action to others? Or is it all just on your shoulders and you have to figure it out and you'll figure it out? Um, in my experience, more and more people, when they do that, very few of our, our even articulated their narrative, much less reflected on it. But most people, when they, they start to think about it, say, oh, my God, I, the future for me is is pretty threatening, and I'm not asking for a lot of help because I can't rely on other people. So it starts with this notion of individual narratives, but then I think you can talk about corporate or organizational narratives. You can talk about regional or geographic narratives or movement narratives. And I'll just give one quick example back to this notion of passion. Um, I've been in Silicon Valley now for over 40 years. And I always get the question, of, well, how do you explain the continued success of Silicon Valley over so many decades? And most people would talk about the universities, talk about the venture capital firms, the infrastructure. And those are certainly not <laughs> to be dismissed, but To me, the real success of Silicon Valley has to do with a very inspiring geographic narrative, which is we have digital technology that is exponentially improving, can fundamentally change the world for the better, but it's not going to happen automatically. You need to come to Silicon Valley and help change the world. And it's an inspiring, exciting opportunity that has drawn people from all over the world. I mean, most people don't know that the majority of successful entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley were not born in the United States, much less in Silicon Valley. They were drawn here from all over the world because of this excitement of an opportunity. And it drew out this passion of the explorer. They wanted to find ways to harness this exponential technology and really change the world. Yeah, well, it's uh, if you hang out from San Francisco, you very much um, you know, get the feeling there's lots of people who have drunk the Kool-Aid, uh, which actually I think came from the Bay Area. The concept as well came from the Bay Area itself. And, uh, and it's... You start to start to you know get inspired as well by that, uh, as you say, that narrative and that belief of the possibilities, unlimited possibilities. <laughs> yeah, and, and and again, I think one of the challenges we have in the world today is more and more we're being uh, dominated by threat-based narratives. You know, all the, the movements that we talk about, climate change, the world's coming to an end. We're all going to die. It's all about the threat in the future. And I don't want to dismiss that again. There, there are threats. But on the other side, 
until and unless we can frame an exciting and inspiring opportunity. What would the world look like if we really addressed climate change? What kind of flourishing world could we create where we would all thrive, not just humans, but plants, animals, everything would thrive? What would that look like? That would excite and inspire people versus, oh, I'm going to die. <laughs> I got It's too overwhelming. I give up. You know, it's, uh, I don't know. So anyway, I think that we need to be very thoughtful about what narratives are driving our action today. And are they focused on threat in the future or opportunity in the future? And, and actually, just as you were talking, I was thinking, in fact, there is also a distinction between limited opportunity and unlimited opportunity. So seeing opportunity is one part. You can say, oh, I can see an opportunity yeah. to do this. But that's, <laughs> not, that's still tangible as opposed to the unlimited opportunity, which is, well, and where could we go beyond that? Well, it's both the unlimited opportunity in the sense of continued expansion of, of opportunity, but it's also this notion of uh, win-win opportunities. I mean, if it's just an opportunity for me or my small group, you know, it's going to put me in competition with others so that we can capture that opportunity for ourselves versus right. this is an opportunity where the more people who join in, the bigger the opportunity is going to become. This is exciting. Let's all come together. April Rinne, in Episode 7, talked about how we deal with change and how we can frame the future so that we can create opportunities. Should we all be getting excited about change? Is that where we want to get to? No, and I love that you kind of walked into where I wanted to take the conversation. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that, which is this word change. And you're spot on because I hear from people pretty much every day Someone will say, yeah, I'm struggling with change X, Y, or Z. And I will also hear from people saying, I love change. I thrive on change. I'm a change junkie. Like, bring it on. And I, in those cases, I always go like, hold on a minute. Because what we're really getting at is that our knowledge of the word change and how we think about change, it's one word. So we often think about it like it's one thing. It's all the same. But the reality is that change is really messy, it's complicated, it's confusing, it's rich, and it's deep. And the easiest way that I can summarize is that on the whole, and again, not to speak for others, but like overall, humans love change we opt into, change we have some agency or control over, right? So a new job, a new relationship, a new trip, a new car, a new haircut, those are all changes, right? We love those because we picked them. The changes we're, I'm talking about and really at the essence, the heart of Flux, those changes we don't control. The changes that blindside you, that whipsaw you, that flip your expectations and plans upside down. The ones, the change that you're like, I just wish that would go away. I wish it had never happened. That's the kind of change that I'm, frankly, I'm still looking for the human that likes that is like bring it on. I want more of that. You do find people who are much better. They're they're they have uh, well. We'll get to this in a little bit. They have the mindset that's much more grooved to like even a change that I didn't want to have happen. It happens, and I can I can make my way through it. I can see the upside. I can see the hidden opportunity, possibility, whatever. There are people who are further along on that spectrum, but on the whole, humans have a really hard time. We resist that kind of change. We wish it hadn't happened. Um, it it 
creates fear and anxiety and so forth. And so just that simple point of like change is so much more than one thing. And I'm not worried about the changes we pick. That's Those are all upside. Mm. Right? It's the changes and the uncertainty and really all of the changes that we don't control have an element of uncertainty. And that's what for a lot of people, there's a kind of um, not unwinding, but like there's this, this not so fun spiral downward that we can take ourselves on because we start to catastrophize, we start to double um, second guess, we start to worry and so forth. So I, th- I think it's pretty safe to say that in the 2020s, we have a pretty decent pace of change and it doesn't seem to be uh, reducing. So, you know, some people have, you know, been readier for this in terms of their mindset or way of framing things. So where, so where are we today? So 2023, we're third of the way through the decade and where things don't look like they're slowing down. So as leaders, what what are those scripts or mental models or frames or how is it that we need to be ready for, you know, and I, I think it's going to get pretty wild from here. Yeah. And let me sort of zoom out real quick before we zoom in specifically to the pace of change. But the way I like to phrase this, and, you know, I've been doing this work for nearly 25 years in a bunch of different ways, right? And it's not like I knew 25 years ago that I would write a book called Flux. That wasn't it. But if I look back and say, when did I begin pulling on these strings of what do we do when we don't know what to do? And why do we behave as we do around uncertainty? And why is it so hard? It goes back quite a long way. And I'd been concerned, you could say, about this increasing pace of change and and how fast everyone felt like they needed to go for quite a long time. And then 2020 arrived. And, you know, that notion of flux, it was like, oh, right, yes, we could use some help with that. And so I do feel like a lot of people have had a bit of a wake up in the last three years of just, you know, how little we control, how much change is underway. And the framing I like to put on it and, you know, we'll keep talking and you know that I'm I'm fundamentally an optimist, not naive optimist, but like I see a huge opportunity ahead. That said, I do have to frame it as the future looks more like the last three years than what came before it. And I don't mean a pandemic and I don't mean war and I don't mean inflation and I don't mean any particular kind of change, but this sense of constant, relentless, like by the time I've reacted to one thing, 10 other things have happened. Like there's more of that ahead, not less. And we're really not that prepared for it individually, collectively. And so again, you can look at that as, oh no, now what? Or you can say, hmm big opportunity for the people who can actually wrap their minds, their mindsets, their business models, et cetera, around that new way of being and working and living and showing up. Thank you for listening to the show. If you really want to amplify your cognition, go to amplifyingcognition.com, where you can access a trove of useful resources to make your mind better and more effective than ever before. If you liked this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review. And subscribe if you want to hear more of this. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.